The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. For this episode of Holy Smoke, I'm in Rome, where there seems to be a consensus that the nine-year pontificate of Pope Francis hasn't got much longer to run. There are very detailed claims being made about his health, which contradict what the Vatican has told us. That doesn't, of course, mean that they're true. But on Saturday, the Pope added to this sense of things winding up by publishing his long-awaited new constitution for the government of the Vatican. Quite far-reaching, but not especially interesting, I think, to anybody except specialists. But there is still so much unfinished business. Or, to put it another way, scandals and bitter factional infighting that any new pope will have to address almost immediately. These include evidence that the Vatican has attempted to shield from justice sex abusers who are also allies of Pope Francis, an international synodal process that's being used by some bishops and even cardinals to push the Catholic Church in the direction of liberal Protestantism, the continuing outrage of the Vatican's 2018 deal with Beijing, which forces local Catholics to attend masses that virtually deify the Chinese Communist Party, and, meanwhile, cruel and clumsy moves, often discussed on this podcast, by the Pope's Yorkshire-born liturgy chief, Arthur Roach, to stop traditional Catholics attending the Latin Mass. Moves which seem to have backfired, by the way. Anyway, These are topics I raised on Friday when I was honoured to be given an interview by Cardinal George Pell, former Prefect for the Economy, who, you will all know, was imprisoned in his native Australia on entirely fictional sex abuse charges on which he was eventually completely acquitted. We didn't talk about that subject, but we did touch on the financial corruption in the Vatican that Cardinal Pell was tackling when Melbourne police arrested him on those bogus charges, much to the satisfaction of corrupt Vatican prelates who may have played a role in framing him. But first, I asked His Eminence about this confusing synodal pathway. One of the things that Catholics find most confusing is this synodal way set up by Pope Francis, which seems to give various radical churches, particularly the Germans, an opportunity to put on the table ideas which come straight from the liberal Protestant tradition. And some of these ideas are being endorsed by cardinals. And a lot of Catholics are wondering, what on earth is going on? This is not how the Catholic Church is supposed to operate. There are synods, but not these chaotic and highly politicised affairs which appear to be attempting to manipulate essential aspects of Catholic teaching. Well, there's a lot of things one might might say about the Synod, and the first is I think we should ask those who are leading it just what they hope to obtain from it and how they hope to do that. Now, as well as those aberrant views which might have been proposed in Germany, 
in many parts of the, the church, as well as a degree of nonsense, uh, good people are proposing sound Catholic teaching. But I think we need a little bit more clarity from those driving the process about what they uh, hope to achieve. Occasionally people compare it with some of the processes in the Anglican Communion. Well, uh, the synodal process, at least according to its own thinking, is not seen as a type of parliament. They are discouraged, if not prohibited, from taking votes on different matters. And uh, I think it said quite explicitly that uh, the range of views discussed will be presented to the Pope and then the Pope will choose what he does with them, quite different from the Anglicans. The other thing, of course, is there's a heavy rhetoric on synodality, but the Holy Father, Pope Francis, is probably as interventionist a Pope as we've had in many, many years. It's difficult to to think of the last Pope who was as self-confident of his authority and prepared to use it all around the world as this Pope. So that sits in tension with uh, the synodality. Another aspect, we should not take church unity for granted. It is a great blessing built up and maintained over the centuries by good people and careful people. And we've got to be very careful that we don't unconsciously damage it. Now, the potential for differences, tensions between national synods is very real, but even perhaps more so between continental synods. You just got to think of the different approaches to fundamental questions of sexual morality of the Polish bishops and the German bishops. We've only got to look at the tensions between the different Orthodox churches, Rome and Constantinople, the three Orthodox churches in Ukraine. These are not radically different people from us. They belong to a different tradition. So all I'm saying is we must be aware of the importance of church unity around Christ and a core of doctrines, and we shouldn't uh, be thinking uh, that it just comes automatically and doesn't need to be preserved. Well, Your Eminence, you talk about tensions between, for example, the German bishops and the Polish bishops on a whole range of subjects, particularly to do with sexual morality. Surely the point of having a Pope is that these tensions are not allowed to build up. I'll give you another example of a tension. I think it's a very profound one. It's between the patriotic Chinese Catholic Church, now backed by the Vatican, which to me seems borderline Christian, and the rest of the Catholic Church. This tension is not only allowed to exist, but actually seems to have been created under this papacy. And I know there's a complicated background to it, but nonetheless, it took concrete and I think very disgraceful form in 2018 and still exists. Well, we're talking about an enormous issue, but we have a preliminary and very substantial difficulty because we don't know what is in the agreement. I know high up people in the Vatican are very dissatisfied with the way things are going. The agreement is there to try to get a bit of space for the Catholics. Obviously, that's praiseworthy. I don't think we've gained anything. The persecutions seem to be continuing. In some places, uh, they've got worse. 
And of course, I especially think of those Catholics in the so-called underground church. You know, the principal point of difference was their loyalty to the successor of Peter. They've been persecuted for that since the late 40s or the 1950s. Now, they're hard, tough people, as all of us would be if we were persecuted in that way for over 70 years. But we owe them a lot. We owe them our respect and our gratitude. I don't want to make a difficult situation worse. I'm not really a China expert at all. But we don't know the precise elements in the agreement, which puts us at a further disadvantage. And you say we are a senior cardinal of the Catholic Church and you don't know. No, well, nobody does. It hasn't been. Well, that can't be true. But nobody outside a small circle does. It hasn't been published, which seems to me to be quite irregular. But surely there are a number of things where transparency is obviously lacking. Now, I don't want to get into a long discussion of the financial reforms because you, above all, know how intensely complicated it is and that there are things that the Pope has done you deplored and there are things that the Pope has done one might criticise. But what I think a lot of Catholics find troubling is a lack of transparency, the failure to submit documents, for example, to trial of Bishop Gustavo Sanchetta, a convicted sex abuser who was mysteriously protected in the Vatican by the Pope. Lack of transparency about the prosecution of Cardinal Betschew the Pope having apparently changed the rules of the trial four times. All of this creates a very unsettling impression. I agree that it is unsettling. I agree that uh, respect for the law must be one of the hallmarks of any civilised, uh, developed society. I think uh, as a matter of law, according to the Vatican law, the Pope did have the capacity to change those laws in the trial, according to what the judge said. Now, whether that is appropriate or inappropriate or ideal or not, that's a further question. Yes, I agree transparency, especially in this day and age, is necessary. I don't know whether you always need to put all your cards on the table, what is a prior question is that things are done justly and correctly. Let me give you an, another example of financial. You can achieve what we're aiming at in the finance through external auditors. Now, we don't necessarily require the external auditors to publish everything that they discover as long as they are independent and competent and what they recommend uh, is done. But look what happened to the external auditor, Libra Maloney. Well, Threat, no. Threatened with being thrown in jail on the authority of Cardinal Betchew or well, higher authority. Well, the external auditors were Price, Waterhouse and Cooper, who were terminated. Maloney was the auditor of the Vatican. Yes, he was, uh, I think, treated uh, quite badly and he was certainly uh, threatened. And Betchew certainly summoned Maloney to talk about it. He subsequently said that it wasn't done on his authority. I think he may be right. He mightn't uh, be right, but he was the one who, uh, who's got the day-to-day -day management of the internal affairs of the Vatican, and he was the one who spoke to Maloney. But we'll leave that for the courts okay. to decide. But, Your Eminence, you talked about things being done justly. Now, the most crying injustice in 
you might say the the Western Church, certainly in the liturgical practice of the Western Church recently, has been the sudden and brutal attempt to cut back on the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, to remove privileges which were granted to Catholics very explicitly and in a beautifully argued way by Pope Benedict XVI, who's basically seen as such an important part of his legacy, torn up. I think this is an absolute outrage. The cause of enormous and completely needless distress to actually a small minority of faithful Catholics, a few of whom have some rather extreme views, but you could have dealt with those without this blanket, not ban exactly, but suppression. And at a time when, you know, the Chinese government is allowed to control the Catholic Church and stage masses which are borderline Christian, which are virtually worshipping the Communist Party, to see traditional Latin masses closed by Archbishop Arthur Roach in such a high-handed and arrogant way, that really sticks in people's throats. It uh, does, and I've got an immense uh, sympathy for the uh, traditionalists, those who follow uh, the old right, but we might be in a situation where things have been improved. So I don't want to throw fuel on the fire, but the the concessions that were given to what the fraternity of St. Peter. That's right, yeah. Uh, now, they are uh, uh, certainly a step in the, the right direction. Concessions that outraged Archbishop Roach by some accounts. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, these accounts can sometimes be accurate, sometimes not. But uh, uh, the working presumption should be that what was given to that uh, fraternity also applies to to similar fraternities like the community of Christ the King and Sovereign High Priest. Well, exactly. That's that I, that I wanted to know. So that's that's my working uh, presumption. And, you know, a lot of bishops around the world, they don't want to inflame the situation. And I think it was a most unfortunate decision and I think a bit uh, inexplicable too. But I'm certainly in favour of trying to improve the situation I wouldn't want to say or do anything which risks starting the bushfire again. Exactly. Well, to wind up, Your Honours, the last nine years have been, for many Catholics, disorientating, depressing, deeply confusing. I think possibly, particularly during those on-flight papal interviews. And when I say nine years, I say nine years for a reason. What reassurance other than the general theological point that the gates of hell won't prevail against the Catholic Church. What reassurance can you give Catholics that stability and orthodoxy will be restored? Stability and orthodoxy haven't been completely destroyed. The Church is led by the Pope, the rock band, the successor of Peter, and we owe reverence to the institution of the papacy, and we owe reverence to whoever uh, is the successor of Peter at the, at time. But the church is also led by the successors of the apostles. There's, I don't know, four or 5,000 bishops charged at dioceses around uh, the world. And in most cases, you know, there are storms. Every now and again, uh, we, we hear about uh, people who want to change this and change that. But the overwhelming majority of the dioceses in the world are pushing on with their work. And we follow Christ. The Pope is there to guide us and to help us with the bishops. 
But if, you know, there's a little bit of uh, uncertainty or wobble there, I think what St. Paul says, you know, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ crucified. Just finally, finally. I agree with you. I was looking at some of the American Catholic bishops. My friend Andrea Picciotti, by a wonderful campaign for conscience rights, was interviewing Bishop Thomas Daly, the American bishop's expert on education. He seemed absolutely outstanding, judging by the interview. And I look at quite a number of American bishops, and I think there's some horror stories there, but also their general caliber seems pretty high in many cases. Speaking as an Englishman, if only I could say the same of my own country. There's a couple of good men who've kept conspicuously silent. I know there are certainly a lot of good men in the English hierarchy. I think there's a lot of strength in the church in England. It's priests, a lot of absolutely terrific. Yes, so many that, of them are terrific. That's right. Well, I mean, I think the fact that 500 priests signed up to affirm the church's teaching on communion for divorced and remarried. You know, I think that was uh, quite an outstanding performance uh, and indicative of a lot of strength. Sometimes we can a little bit, a little bit too hard on our own. Okay, point taken. But I think in the confrontation with modernity in the English-speaking world, elements of the church in the United States are way ahead. I think they give the model for how we uh, should battle with those things. Now, they've got a few spectacular challenges there uh, also. There aren't as big uh, personalities, uh, perhaps in the English church, but in the hierarchy too, there's considerable strength. It's interesting, the English bishops in particular seem to not want to appear to be divided. But there's a ginger group in them, which means they have to be accommodated within the overall body. And I think this is working for the better health of the church there. The English church is a bit understated, but I think it's got a lot of strength. Fingers crossed, Germans, and thank you very much indeed. Pleasure.